and welcome once again to Reno Heights. This is the podcast where I, your host, Connor O'Quivy, talk with folks from the Reno area about all of the important issues that face our city, talk to some politicians, talk to some business people, talk to people from the arts and culture community. Today, I'm talking to Benjamin Castro, the executive director of RISE. RISE is the Reno Initiative for Shelter and Equality. Ben and I had a great conversation about the origins of RISE, all of their different projects, and the issues facing the unhoused population here in Reno. Before we get to the interview, a couple quick notes. I would love to hear your feedback on this episode or any other. Please shoot me an email. My email address is connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. This is a brand new podcast, so I am really excited to hear your feedback and make sure that it is the best it can be. Also, if you haven't subscribed to Renoites yet on your podcast app of choice, please do that. That is how you will know when we have new episodes. As I said, this is a brand new podcast, so I'm still figuring out our posting schedule, but there will likely be new episodes every Tuesday and perhaps some bonus episodes along the way. If you find us on your podcast app of choice and click subscribe, then you'll automatically be able to download and listen to new episodes. And last but not least, leave me a review. If you enjoy the show, please find me, especially on Apple Podcasts, and leave a positive review, some good feedback. That will help other listeners find the show. And if they see those good reviews, they're more likely to listen. And on a more personal note, thank you so much for the support so far. This is a brand new project, but it has been so rewarding and so fun. People have been incredibly supportive, and I am just so grateful that the people in my life who know me, and even some who don't, have taken an interest in the show. I think it's going to be really fun, and I am glad you are along for the ride. So, without any further ado, this week's guest, Ben Castro. So, first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast and talk to me. I'm really excited to learn a lot about Rise because I'm familiar with you. Uh, I met you briefly. I came in and served food at one of the Rise and Dine dinners uh, a couple years back, and it's been great seeing all the progress in you know the last couple years. I guess the best place for us to start is if you could just give me a little bit of an overview of what Rise is and kind of what role you play in the uh, in serving the homeless population in Reno now, and then we'll kind of jump back to the beginning and talk about some of the projects that you've had along the way and what you've learned from them. But to start, if you just want to introduce yourself and kind of tell me a little bit about what Rise is and your role in Rise and what function rise performs in the uh, like larger landscape of the Reno homeless situation. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, so first, my, my name's Benjamin Castro. I'm the executive director of Rise. We are houseless advocates. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we try to, to speak for those who have been ignored or forgotten in our society. If I were to say what kind of organization we are. We're consensus-based. We're a bottom-up kind of organization. Everything we do is focused on the needs and demands of the people we serve. Until more recently, we were a collection of, of volunteers who, who cared, who wanted to get informed, wanted to stay informed, and wanted to have an impact. Uh, again, on, on the not just on the people we serve, but uh, you know, to influence the structural mechanisms that that put people 
outside in the first place. More recently, uh, many of us graduated, I guess, or transitioned from volunteers to actual paid employees through our partnership with the County Human Services Agency to, to operate our place. So we've, we've come a long way. It's been an incredible journey, and I'm really excited for the, the great things that I think are in our future. That's great. I'm excited that Our Place has become such a successful project. But to start, I kind of want to go back to the beginning of how Rise started. So what were the first steps into the organization and how did how did it all begin? This organization started about 10 years ago. Our flagship operation was the Rise and Dine project. And I can tell you a little bit about how that started. So it was early to mid-2011. Um, you know, people are gearing up for election time. So so me and some friends, we were younger then. Um, it's crazy to think that that was almost a decade ago now. But we were, we were active in the community doing all of the civic engagement things that, that people do, you know, uh, registering people to vote, trying to get petitions signed, uh, trying to have influence on uh, politics and those structural changes in that, that conventional way. In our outreach efforts, we had met a person, uh, a houseless brother, and I, I won't use his name, but he had gotten really excited about our passion, our vision uh, for social change, for justice, for an equitable world, a world that we thought was, was fair. So he started volunteering with us as well. And then, you know, the election comes and goes, or we start winding it down like our, our work is done. And when it was time for all of us to go home, he kind of said, well, what's, what's the next step? What do we do after this? We said, well, there is, there is no next step. That, that was it. We're, we're done now. And now we all go back to our lives. And he had, told, he had told me and he had told us, you know, it's great that you kids have this, this vision of a world that's, that's fair and just. And, you know, I'm sure the work that we did will, will have an impact, but people need tangible help now. They don't. They don't need an idea. They need. They need food. They need sh new shoes. They need bus tickets. Like they need the basic necessities, and they need them right now. So he had quite literally dragged me down to the Four Street Shelter by the ear. Um, he said, "I'm taking you to dinner. You have to see this. If if you're so concerned about the people we're trying to help, and you've never been down here, um, then I'm taking you down here." So he took me down to the Forest Street Shelter, um, and at the time, there was a group called the Loving Hearts Club, and they were serving dinner in the parking lot. And it was my, my first experience with the uh, Community Assistance Center, and it, it's pretty shocking the first time you go down there, and it can be pretty intimidating. I mean, there's, you know, 300-plus people um, all standing in line trying to get something to eat. And he had walked me down the line. And he's, you know, pointing out people that he knows and he's saying hi to folks. And, and he tells me, you know, these people down here get a really bad reputation for being, um, you know, trespassers or, or drug dealers or thieves or all, all the negative stereotypes that you hear about our unsheltered neighbors. And he, he had told me that, you know, the people who are committing those sort of crimes, the people who are committing those sort of um, actions – they're the ones who are afraid to stay outside. They're the ones who will do anything they can to, to not wind up in this place. He said, these aren't those people. These people would rather hurt themselves than hurt anybody else. So for me, that was kind of an eye-opening experience. And then afterwards, we went and talked to the founders of the Loving Hearts Club. They were still serving um, 
dinner out of their truck. And I'd kind of ask, so what's, how, how do you do this? What's, who, who are you working for? What, you know, what program are you with? How does this work? And he, they basically said, we're, there's nothing to it. We made a bunch of sandwiches and we're handing them out. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't have a budget. We don't get, um, we don't get million dollar checks. There's no payroll. We, we're just doing it. So in my, in my mind, something clicked about what I thought direct action um, and mutual aid really looks like. So, you know, I, we reconvened our friends again. And at the time we said, you know, we, we've all got degrees. These, these have got to be worth something. This, uh, this seems like something we can do. Let's, let's do something. So we, we had this, this big pot, like this big, huge cooking pot. And we, we called it the Wonder Pot. And we had thrown all of our leftovers in it, basically, um, heated it up to temp and said, we're, we're going to take it down and we're going to serve it too. And this is just going to be a good outreach opportunity for us. This will be a good way to, to kind of get, you know, some boots and some ears on the ground to really, really figure out what, what people are struggling with. And I became hooked instantly. Uh, there's, there really is nothing like that level of engagement because some, you know, sometimes the, the group that we serve, a lot of times they, they just want to be heard. They just want to be seen and they just want to feel normal again for, for just a moment. And I, I say it a lot to the people we talk to, but, you know, the, that, that human interaction, making them feel regular, I guess, for lack of a better word again, or, or just not invisible. Because most of the time, the only time that they are seen out in the community is when they're reminded that they're not welcome. So just giving them that moment to where we see you and you are welcome to be here and we want you to be here, even if it's just for a moment. So in any case, you know, it didn't take us long. Um, at the time, we were surfing out of my apartment kitchen. So it didn't take us long to figure out serving meals for 400 people in a kitchen built for two is not going to last very long. Um, how, do we, how do we expand? How do we grow? The first thing we did was, well, let's get incorporated because that makes us look official, right? People, people like accountability. They like transparency. They like to know that we will be um, transparent with what we're doing. And then after that, we, we had a decision we had to make. Do we put the project on hold and start pursuing USDA grants or start pursuing like a, a soup kitchen kind of model uh, like the Catholic Charity St. Vincent's program, which is an amazing program? Um, do we pursue that model or what are our, our alternatives? Because we can't keep coming out of pocket like this every week. It's, you know, it's just not sustainable. And it was actually my, my wife at the time, her idea was, you know, since we're so um, dedicated to this line of work and since we're so kind of hooked on this direct engagement and this direct action, I bet there are other people out there who would really enjoy this experience also. So we put out an ad on Craigslist that said, hey, we're going to be down here on Saturdays at five o'clock and uh, we're bringing, you know, a crock pot of chili. And if you want to bring your favorite recipe and you want to share, you're welcome to join us and we'll set up another table and um, we'll, we'll all break bread together. And please invite your friends and please join us. And the response from the community was... Um, nothing short of, of overwhelming. And honestly, that was, that has been our model ever since for the last 10 years. That's great. Do you think that making it 
easy for people to participate was a key to having Rise and Dine be so successful? Because I know a lot of people have general concerns about the homeless population and they want to know how to help, but they don't necessarily know what to do. Or like you said, it can be intimidating for people who haven't had that much interaction with um, the unhoused population. So do you think that by making it kind of just friendly and inviting for any regular person to just bring on down some food made that uh, an easy on-ramp for people who weren't actively involved in helping to actually take some action? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that. You know, one of the things that we always say is that there's there's a lot of people out there who want to help that want to get involved. Um, and all you really need, you don't need to tell them what to do. You don't need to, to tell them how to do it. All you need to do is give them permission. Just tell them, yes, yeah, you can you can do that. And because we're doing it, <laughs> you know, so having that, that, like you said, that easy on-ramp to where here's an easy way to get involved. And it's kind of funny as, as the project grew, of course, in the, in the early years, our measurement of success was as long as everybody got a plate of food, we'll call tonight's dinner a success. And we had a lot of unsuccessful nights, uh, especially in the early years. Um, and especially as the lines continued to grow uh, throughout this whole time. But as we started getting more and more regular volunteers, our metrics for success started to change. I mean, first it was, of course, if everybody who wants a hot plate gets, gets one and even seconds, that's great. There's enough food to grow around. That's our metric for success. After that, we had determined, you know, the whole point of this direct engagement is to change the perception of the people that we're serving and uh, eliminate the stigma of poverty. So, so now how do we influence the people who are coming down to help? Because, of course, everybody has this, this negative stereotype of what people are experiencing homelessness looks like. And in our culture, we have this kind of um, like Puritan ethic thing to where if you're poor, then you somehow deserve it. So how do we, how do we challenge that stigma? How do we, how do we make our, our neighbors relatable again? So then we turned into, if we can get a new volunteer to join us every week, then that will be um, our new measure of success. Uh, and then it grew into, if we can get that person to sign back up again and to join us again, then that's going to be another measure of success. So having the participation rate of our volunteers and, and having them return, and then really using this opportunity as a platform to talk to them about, here are the struggles that are, that you know, our, our neighbors are dealing with. And it's, you know, I, and I've seen it happen time and time again, where somebody will be down there serving and they'll, they'll recognize somebody in our, in our line. They'll recognize somebody who that they used to go to school with, or who used to be a neighbor or who used to be a coworker. And it really is kind of that aha moment to where it's this sort of thing can happen to anybody, you know? So that started becoming our new mission too, to where it's, we, we won't be able to affect change unless more and more people recognize that this isn't any sort of personal choice that people are making. It's a systemic issue. Um, and the more that people engage with the population, the more that they'll realize that, you know, the system that we have doesn't work for everybody. I know that at the the Rise Nine dinners, at least the t couple times that I participated, there was also the the free market. So there was a table set up with essential items, uh, 
how when did that come into the picture and and how does that kind of fit into the rise and dine and and move you beyond just serving food to to other services uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, the free market was our our second pilot project um, that complemented Rise and Dine. So we would serve them in tandem. As more and more volunteers started returning, you know, and the whole goal again was that we wouldn't have to facilitate every interaction. We wouldn't have to dictate every every movement. We would provide uh, um, space for people to organically make their own connections. So, you know, the folks who would come and join us, obviously, now that the stigma of poverty has been removed, now now they're engaging with the population, they're engaging with their neighbors, and they, you know, start asking, how can I help? What what else do you need? So the, the next easy steps were, you know, uh, I kind of need some some toothpaste, like a, uh, a new set of shoes would be really helpful, a blanket, um, you know, socks. So... A lot of our returning volunteers would just start showing up with things that had been donated, uh, and we didn't really, at the time, had had a way to distribute those items. So the first time and the first couple of times, it was kind of a disaster because somebody would show up with a bunch of coats, and we'd be serving dinner, and they said, hey, I bought a bunch of coats down. I said, oh, that's that's great. How about we just lay them down over here, and whoever wants one can come get one. And half of our dinner line left to go get coats. And of course, there's not 300 coats in this bag. So then the so then they start running back to get back in a dinner line. And then, hey, that was my place. And hey, you know, so it's there were a few times we had to. There's enough food for everybody. Just everybody be patient, please. So, you know, that's that's a learning curve on our on our part. Once it started to become a regular, um, a regular thing that, hey, people are you know, responding to the demands of our neighbors. And again, that's not, that's nothing that we dictated. That's nothing that we facilitated. All we, we did was give people permission to help. So once we had realized that this is going to be a regular occurrence until we figure out a better way to do this. Uh, so the, at that point, the, the free market was born and we, we stuck with that name because uh, we thought it was funny and, um, and it's a free market. So dinners were at five. We decided not to have, and this this took us a while to figure out too, let's not start the free market and rise and dine at the same time <laughs> because then people have to choose which line they're going to stand in. And it's, again, just it's a little bit chaotic and it's not a fair choice to present to people. We extended our hours of operation. Uh, the free market will start at 3.30 and then dinner will start at 5.00. So that way, everybody has an opportunity to go through, um, grab their their hygiene items, you know, like razors, combs, um, toothpaste, toothbrushes, socks, uh, feminine hygiene products. And then from there, it was, hey, if you have clothes to donate, we can sort through those, you know, get them get them organized. That way, people aren't digging through bags looking for their size. We can have it pre-organized for them. And I have some some really fun pictures from years ago to where we had put everything on hangers and we were hanging them up on the gate. And people would come in and have the opportunity to kind of shop around and grab what they need. And, you know, this population, our, our neighbors, I, I really have to say, they're some of the most generous people that I have ever met. You know, they would come in, they would grab what they needed, and then somebody else would come in behind them and say, oh, do you have any more larges? And it's, no, that was the last one. And you would see that, that, that person just say, here, here, you take it. You need it. I don't, it's okay. I already got one, but you can have it. Um, so just seeing that, 
uh, that mutual support and that mutual respect with with our neighbors and the people we serve really was uh, inspiring. So that's that is how the free market was born. That hey, you know, food is one of those everyday basic necessities, but there are also these other necessities that that people need, and there's a way to do it. Um, there's a way to to provide or support um, those needs, and that that is dignified. So what was the process going from from Rise and Dine to moving more towards sheltering? Because that's a big part of what you do now is actually providing shelter. So where did that transition happen and kind of what was the next step going from from just serving food and then providing those kind of essential items to actually working on getting people sheltered? The next two projects kind of go hand in hand, and then this is what kind of brought up our, our epiphany, so to speak. So after we had kind of smoothed out all the all the rough edges of of rise and dine in the free market that hey things are things are going well everybody's getting fed we're getting new volunteers and and returning volunteers uh we've got a healthy supply of um you know toothbrushes and socks and razors and people are just responding to the need and this is fantastic what else can we be doing what else what else do do our people need so we had sent out a survey. We had collected responses for, I want to say, two weeks just to, hey, what what else, what are the struggles you're dealing with? What else can we help you with? What, how can we improve, uh, et cetera? And at the time, I was kind of naive. I was thinking like, oh, they want more dessert options or, oh, there's not enough salt in the chili or, hey, what about, uh, you know, blue Gatorade in, in addition to red Gatorade? Just really, really kind of, you know, first world problem stuff. Um, so that's I was I was naive in thinking, oh, this will really, really give us the feedback that we need to fine tune this machine. And everybody's response was, I, I need housing. I need a secure place to, to sleep at night. Many of them were either afraid of of sleeping inside the men's shelter or the women's shelter, or they were former uh, guests who had already timed out. So they were kind of stuck in this loop of going into the shelter, timing out, staying outside for a month or two, and then getting back on the list and going back in. And they, they were stuck in this cycle. Every time I'm outside, I can't save up enough money to get inside. Or and every time I'm inside, um, by the time I get out, I go through it on on rent within a few weeks or a month, and then I'm back outside again. I need a stable place to be that I can afford, so that way I can focus on my next steps. So for us, again, we we kind of read all the results and said, "Well, and and yes, there there was, you know, I I like brownies. That was in there too." <laughs> So as a team, we we um, analyzed our um, data and said, okay, well, let's take a look at the housing housing market, and we're we're all inside, right? I've I can afford my apartment. This was back, by the way, when they were still going for like seven hundred dollars mm-hmm. a month. So um, this was pre housing crisis, but we were right there. So you know, again, okay, well, um, why is this so difficult for people to get inside? What what are some of the issues that that we're experiencing? At this time, we had also built up a, a large volunteer base of our uh, unsheltered neighbors as well that, uh, you know, some of them for years who every Saturday we would be there. They would help us set up. They would help us break down. Um, we started picking them up on Saturdays and bringing them back to my place to help us, you know, organize and cook and really just getting involved. 
So we had asked them, so what are, what are the struggles that you're, you're dealing with? I mean, you, you know, you're, you're extremely intelligent, you're extremely um, capable. Why are you still stuck outside? And, and one couple that, that I do have their permission to, to use their names uh, is uh, David and Melly. You know, David said, well, here's some of the issues. One, I'm, I'm not leaving. He calls her mama. He says, I'm, I'm not leaving mama behind. We, we like to stay together and there's no couple's option. I don't want her to go in there by herself. And she doesn't want to go in there by herself. So I, I stay with her. Uh, so there, there was the first barrier that there's no, there's no couple options. Uh, the second one was that they had two small animal companions. They had two small dogs. They said, we can't, we can't bear to part with our dogs. Like these dogs have been with us, uh, before we were outside. This is some of the, you know, we can't abandon them now. It's not their fault. We're homeless, you know, or unsheltered rather. Some of the other things he pointed out was that, you know, neither of us uh, qualify for Social Security because we're still of working age. And then the last thing, which is kind of odd, he said, and none of us are suffering from some any sort of a substance use disorder, um, which there's a lot of programs out there for people who do. And then he said, and then we don't have any children. So there, there really are no options for us. So it was, it was kind of funny for me to, cause I, I took all these notes and, you know, I, I went home, um, and I looked at them and I said, you know, all of these things are actually in, in normal society, in our culture, these are all strengths. These are all benefits. Okay. You guys are a strong couple. You, you know, you have dogs, uh, you're not suffering from substance use disorder. You're of working age. And then in my personal experience with them that you're, you're extremely, you know, you're, you're smart, you're capable, what what are the other barriers? Why is this such an issue? So I, I had I came back to the to the tracks and I found them again and I said I'm I'm confused. I still don't I still don't get it. Um, are you working? What are is it just too hard to find work? And he was working. He was working odd jobs here and there. And he said, here's here's my problem. When you're living outside, you you work a job and and you know Mama stays and she watches the camp and everybody knows that this is our spot. Nobody really messes with us, but you save up a few hundred dollars, you get, you know, six, $700 saved up and you're really trying to save up for uh, a down payment on an apartment and the application fees and the first last month's rent. And he's, he's like, I need to save up, you know, roughly three grand to be able to move in somewhere. And he says, I've gotten close a few times, but you know, like usually around $1,500, and this is what he told me, usually around $1,500 is when I hit my breaking point and I can't spend another night outside. I can't. It's like, so we, or she can't. So we go and we get a weekly and I put, you know, $1,400 down on two weeks at a weekly. And we have a nice two weeks to where we have running water and a bathroom and a locking door and all of the nice you know, sense of security and a, and a good night's sleep. And by the time the two weeks are up, I haven't saved up enough to, um, to continue. So we're back outside. So it, you get stuck in this poverty trap. So it's, it was one of those odd things. And this is a couple that had been deemed uh, program resistant. What does that, what does that mean? Program resistant? Uh, program resistant basically means they're not, they're not willing to separate. She's not going to go into the women's shelter. He's not going, going to go into the men's shelter. They're, they're resisting programs. 
you know, so learning more of that firsthand experience about the poverty cycle, learning more of that that experience. And these are all things we can relate to. You don't want to give up your dog. You don't want to break up your family. You're you're just going to rough it. And it kind of dawned on, on me that this couple, this family, it's not program resistant. They're just not program qualified. So we identi- we had identified them as a couple that, and this whole demographic of folks that there are no services for them. So that was just kind of one example that like, okay, here's some of the barriers that people are experiencing um, into getting emergency housing. At the same time, one uh, volunteer group had that had been kind of regular with us was a group home for high-functioning mentally ill men and women. So they're suffering from some sort of um, mental health issue, but, but they are high-functioning. And they were cooking pastas and lasagnas and food, and they were bringing it down to serve. And it was, it was um, a lot of fun, and they, they were a fun group. And then one of the residents at this program uh, had asked, hey, Ben, we, you, know, you, you should come over and, and play, uh, play board games with us one day, or you should, you should come over and hang out and do all this other fun stuff. And they had been asking for months. And so eventually I said, okay, yeah, okay, uh, let's, you know, where, where are you guys at? I'll, I'll come by and we can, we can have a game night. So, and of course I cleared it with the house manager. She was, you know, we, we'd love to have you over. So, okay, I, I, I want to go hang out with you guys. Yeah, this will be fun. So we, we go over to the group home and we're, I think we played Monopoly or, or I, it was, it was a board game. We were, we were having fun. It was a Saturday afternoon and they had this really beautiful yard, backyard in the back that got tons of sunlight and it was just bare empty. And I said, what are you guys doing with this backyard? And they said, oh, you know, nothing. It's just a yard. I said, you know, it'd be really, really nice to have a garden back here to where we can grow food and you guys could actually cook that food and bring it down to Rise and Dine. And it's it's an idea that we had been tossing around as an organization for a while that, you know, one way to supplement the costs of the food that we were cooking was to grow your own. Like, how do we reach out to organizations or how do we do it ourselves to where we could grow our own organic, you know, high quality, nutrient dense produce and and give our guests better quality food? Because if you if you eat good, you feel good. Right. And uh, we can definitely get into the uh, food as healthcare um, model as well, which I, I do believe in. So. We had kind of pitched the idea to this group that, hey, if we can raise some funds and, you know, get get the toil, the, the soil turned over and we can get some um, some starter seeds, I'm sure donated, or maybe we can grow our own and, you know, we'll, we'll get all the stuff, the irrigation. Could we grow a garden back here and, and have the residents kind of tend it? So they loved it. We were able to raise, I think it was like $1,200 uh, really fast. And we said, this is going to be a nice group project for, for the residents here. And at the same time, we're, we're going to learn more about how group homes work because that's where we were going that, hey, we, we, we need to get some couples like David and Melly and, and a few other folks that we had identified. We need to get them inside. And, and we're partnering with this, um, with this group home and this will be fun. So it was it was a fantastic summer. You know, we we turned the soil. Uh, we tried to get them into composting a little bit, but it didn't really stick well. And and that's okay. I get it. Old habits die hard. But you know, one step at a time. I remember one of the fun things. Uh, we decided to start everything from seeds, 
and I, I had a few heirloom seeds that, that I had been, um, uh, growing, uh, year after year and, and saving the seeds. So we, we had a, a decent seed stock and we decided, you know, we're going to, we're going to grow the seeds and this is going to be your, your pet, you know, your pet plant until it's time to transplant it outside. And then we're going to, you know, watch it grow. So with, um, with a lot of the young men here, one of the things I remember telling them, and I know this is maybe kind of cheesy, but it stuck out in my mind when we were, you know, everybody was picking which plant they wanted. Do you want a zucchini? Do you want a pepper? Do you want a, um, you know, uh, a tomato? Which, which one of these things do you want? So everybody was kind of picking their own thing. And we had set up the soil uh, pots. And before we put them in, I, I remember telling them that, in this seed um, exists the will to live, just like all living creatures. And even in Nevada, which has the, the harshest conditions, um, the, the smallest life expectancy, just really, really unimaginable odds, this seed still has the will to live, just like you. And even in these harsh conditions, with a little bit of love and attention and care, not only will it live, but it can thrive just like you. So, so far so good, man. Am I just kind of rambling or? No, this is, this is great. Cause like I said, I am familiar with rise, but I didn't know the history and the story. And, and that's really what I think a lot of people probably have a similar experience with our unsheltered population where they're aware that it is a topic of discussion. They hear these general ideas around homelessness and, and what is the city doing and, and what are these organizations doing? but they might not actually know the stories behind it or how these organizations started. Getting the origin story and why it matters, I think is really important for a lot of people who, who just haven't heard it before. Yeah, thank you. And it's, and it's weird to even think that we like have an origin story because I'm still, I mean, things move so fast in my mind. I'm still just kind of like, yeah, we just, we serve people food and we just try to help and we listen to people and we believe them, <laughs> you know? And now it's like, oh, we've been, we've been doing this for a long time. I guess there, I guess there is a reason that, um, and it's, it's weird because I've seen so many people come and go to where it really is like a, like that's going to be the next, that, that guy's running with it or that team's running with it. They've, they've got it. They're going to be the next. And then four months later, hit a wall burnout. Did you have any challenges like that as you kind of got started? Were there roadblocks that you ran into or unexpected situations that came up during Rise and Dine or the or the the free market or any of these earlier projects that you worked on with Rise? Did you ever have those times where things didn't go at all like you expected or you were like, oh, crap, this just this isn't going to work out the way that we thought? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were many times where we thought that uh, the Volunteers of America were just going to lock their gates one day and we just wouldn't be able to get in. Or there were a few times, and I'll tell you one, which is kind of funny. I remember the first time that I tried to cancel a Rise and Dine event, and it was the last time <laughs> that we ever did it. <laughs> so it was like, you know, year one, maybe year two, we were still kind of, for the most part, cooking all of the food, doing all the heavy lifting. We would have some families uh, come through, but for the most part, it was it was all us. And there was a really nasty snowstorm that night, and we were all kind of gathered at my apartment, and it was, you know, four o'clock, 4.30 looking out the window like, hey, it's, or I think it was like, you know, two o'clock and it was, it was coming down bad. 
So I had made the decision like, you know what, this is a, this is a safety hazard. We can't be asking volunteers to drive in these conditions. Nobody's going to be there anyways. Let's, we're not cooking. We're, let's just cancel it. So I, I made a couple of phone calls like, hey, we're not coming. And they said, yeah, yeah neither are we. I said, okay, cool. So uh, I had told my operations director at the time, um, and it, it's real fun. When you start your own company, you get to give yourself all these fancy names. So it's like, hey, you're the operations director now, buddy. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I told my director of operations, hey, we're, we'll make coffee because I'm already boiling the water. We'll make the coffee. We'll send it down. Um, it, if you don't mind just, just going down there and, you know, letting the few people who probably do show up in the snowstorm, like, hey, sorry, here's a cup of coffee. We're not coming. And if any volu- random volunteers do show up, just let them know, you know, it's, it's canceled. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, there's no way. There's just, you know, there's no way. This, it's a blizzard. So he he takes off at about four and we're still hanging out at the apartment and it's, you know, five o'clock um, and then it's six o'clock and then it's like six thirty and I'm calling him and I'm, I'm like, hey, man, are you are you OK? It's so pretty bad out here. Please just let us know you're safe. Let us know everything's OK. And he doesn't come back until seven. And we're like, what, you know, was, are the roads that bad? Is everything okay? He said, yeah, the roads are pretty bad. He's like, but we are never, ever, ever doing that again. I'm like, what happened, man? He said, I had to serve 300 people coffee and tell them that food was not coming (laughs) by myself, man. (laughs) You know, and of course I'm like, of course our guests showed up. This is, they live here. They live in it. They live in it. Of course they showed up. This is dinner time. That they don't really have an option, do they? So at that point it was I felt awful. We all felt awful. And then it was, okay, you know, rain or shine. If if our guests are gonna be here, then we're gonna be here with them. Was that kind of a turning point where it was, okay, this is a project that we're that we're doing that we aren't necessarily 100% always there all the time, and it turned into, oh, wait, we have a real obligation to this community? Yeah, absolutely. When before it was still, and again, I, I think this was like, uh, like year one, you know, to where it was, um, no, people, people depend on this. And if you're going to do it and, you're, and you say you're going to do it, then, then you better do it. And if you're not going to do it, then then step aside and let somebody else. But honestly, for us, it, there if we don't, there there is no one else. So there, somebody has to do this. And if we're this concerned, and if we're actually, you know, if we're going to be about all the things we're say we say we're about, and we have the means to actually do something about it, then why not us? You were telling me about the the gardens and the and that project and kind of how that was a step on the way to to housing right what was uh what what came next after that oh so how did those tie in that's right so um so we had gotten all of the the young men excited about hey i'm i'm growing my own food and this is going to be really fun and we continued following up with them you know um every every dinner they would come 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 by and probably every wednesday i would go by there and just check in and oh look the seedlings are starting and Okay, we have to separate some of these because we got, you know, seven of them in this tiny little plot. Let's let's see if we can separate or, you know, choose which one's actually going to live. 
So this was fun. You know, we've got, we're growing food. This is great. And we're learning more about group housing, group models. So at the same time, we, I could not get David and Melly out of my head that we've got this, this couple that, that is outside. And um, David had disclosed that he had had a, uh, that he had had a stroke some years ago. And, you know, this is one of those things, and, and this really kind of dawned on me as well, that people don't really think of the journey it takes from being inside and having a job and just being one of the quote unquote normies and the journey from having that to being outside. It's not an overnight occurrence. Like people aren't just born outside and stay outside, you know. So I, I kept following up with them every weekend as well um, and, and hearing about you know, he had a high paying job. He, he met his, his wife. I believe they were both doing karaoke, just, just a normal, you know, like, Hey, we're, we're in love and we're getting married. And then hearing the journey of, uh, Hey, you had an unexpected medical bill and then, uh, you couldn't return to work because of it. And then you had to, you had to downsize your home into an apartment and then you had to get a storage unit. And then short, you know, shortly after that, you, you lose the, the storage unit. And then, and then you lose all the stuff from there and, and then you lose the apartment and then you're in the car and then you do that for as long as you can. And then one day you, you finally lose the car and you're outside. And by the time you get outside, you're so exhausted from fighting for so long to prevent this from happening that by the time you, you get outside, you're, you're exhausted, you're defeated you know, it's not like a, Hey, I woke up one day and all my stuff's gone and I'm just gonna wake up with vigor and get everything back immediately. Like that's, that's just unrealistic. So, but this couple uh, was well known in the, in the community. They were taking advantage. I don't want to say taking advantage, but they were, you know, going to the food banks, going to the different uh, resources in town, uh, including us and volunteering where they could and, and just trying to make connections and, and make their way back up. But we had really identified them as one of those folks that, you know, you, you really don't need long-term wraparound services. This, this seems more like a poverty issue than any sort of other issue. In our housing model, we had, we had kind of thought, what if we just identified this, this, niche, this niche demographic that nobody's serving? And I don't want to say there's an abundance of resources available for, for those suffering from mental health illness or substance use disorder or anything like that. But at the very least, there are programs for those for for um, that demographic. What about this demographic that there there is nothing? So we were kind of turning the wheels on on what that would look like, and we had kind of opted for you know we we need to we need to get a house we we need to get a group home. We can put this underserved demographic in it, and we can charge a sliding scale and just give them that two to three months boost that, that they really need before they can transition and be independent again. Cause I had asked them like, what, what do you really need? I mean, why, you know, how much time would it take? And, and they told me three months, if I could have three months with a roof where I don't have to worry about the bills, I can save up enough money to be on my own. So we were okay. Okay. That's, that's our target deadline. So and and again, throughout this entire time, the free market's doing well. Rise and Dine is still doing well and continuing. 
we had decided to call the, the garden project and we were expanding that as well to where it's, hey, let's, let's grow food to supplement Rise and Tide. And we were soliciting partners for that and we decided to call it Giving Gardens, which, and, and I'll just say, grew into an amazing partnership with uh, Flint Street Farm and, and Soulful Seeds as it is today. And they donate tons of produce and, and we've made amazing friends at the Great Basin Co-op through that project also. And, and a lot of others that I'm forgetting right now, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> so at the end of the growing season, uh, with this group home, you know, all of these things are all happening at once. It's coming up to the end of the, the you know, it's coming up to harvest. Like, hey, we're going to harvest the peppers and the zucchinis and the tomatoes, and we've got tons of spinach and tons of kale and chard, and it's just going to, you know, we're going to harvest it and cook it and serve it and eat it ourselves. This is going to be beautiful. So around that time, the house manager had had called me and said, hey, I've, I've, we've got a problem. I've got an emergency. I need your help. I said, okay. So I, you know, I'm understandably nervous. So I, I call her back and I'm like, what's, what's, the, what's the emergency? What's going on? And she said, well, it's regarding, and I don't want to use his name, um, but it was a, a, a young man who was a, a resident there. He said, it's regarding this person. And he's, uh, he's quitting the program. He's moving out. I said, oh, oh no. Well, that's, that's, that's not good. What's going on? He said, he's, he's moving out by the end of the week. And I don't, can you, can you talk to him? Can you convince him to stay? Can you, can you just talk to him? I said, okay, yeah. And you know, we, this was, this was the kid who invited me over for board games. This was the, the whole reason I'm this far involved in, into this, um, project in the first place. So, uh, that Wednesday when I went up to to visit everybody and, you know, we weren't using Roundup or anything. So we're literally picking slugs off of tomato plants and and trimming little, um, um, what do they call those, pluckers off the tomatoes and doing all doing all the stuff. We're doing it by hand, you know. So I, I got a moment with him alone. I said, hey, man, can I can I talk to you for a second? And uh, so I pull him aside and I'm, I, you know, I heard you're you're dropping out of the program that you're leaving. What's going on? And he said, well, I'm, I just, I'm tired of, uh, surrendering my, my, uh, income to this place. And honestly, me and a couple others, uh, we're, we're just going to take our money and we're going to go get an apartment. So for, for those who are unfamiliar, most Medicaid billing group homes, which is your traditional model, most of the residents either surrender their, their disability income or, or they uh, have Medicaid and they're billed for it, or they have like a payee, whatever, whatever the case may be. Usually they surrender their income to the organization in exchange for room and board. And then they'll get, you know, like maybe 50 bucks a week or whatever, whatever's left over. These residents had kind of figured out that, hey, we can actually, if, if we don't do that and we all pool our money together, we can move out of here. We can go get our own apartment and we can, you know, keep our money. So I, I said, so is you and a couple of others are going to go get an apartment? He said, yeah. And I know that, again, I, I can't use names, but I, I know that the house manager is really, really mad at us and I'm really sorry. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that she's mad at me, but I just, you know, we want to get out of here. So I told him, this doesn't sound like you're dropping out at all. This sounds like you guys are graduating. Right. That sounds that sounds like a success story. Yeah. Like, this is the whole point. You guys are getting out of here. So I, I was like, congratulations. This is fantastic. When are you leaving? He says, I'm looking at the end of the week. And I said, what apartment did you get? Oh, my God. Go get those other two. You guys, you know, so I'm I'm over the moon. I'm ecstatic. 
So I go back to the house manager and I'm say, I said, you know, they're, they're not dropping out. They got their own place. This is, this is great. And it, and it was kind of sad because her reaction was like, well, yeah, but what that leaves me with is that I got to figure out how to get more people into these beds in order to keep the lights on. And so it really kind of dawned on how, how like the perverse incentives that there are in a lot of these models that it's, it really becomes more self-serving than it is about serving the people we're, we're actually here to, to serve. Well, that was just one of those enlightening moments that, oh, this is part of what some people would call like the homeless industry complex, mm -hmm. you know, that you guys are, you guys are in this too. It's about self-preservation than, than it is about actually ending homelessness, actually ending poverty. This is more about just keeping your job. So that was, that was eye-opening to say the least. And again, I'm not, I'm not mad at her. I'm not mad at any of these organizations. I get it. But it, it was definitely like, oh, you, there are a lot of incentives for you to keep people here than there is for you to transition them out. So in any case, uh, that, that kind of sat with us or sat with me anyways for, for a week or so. But I had asked this group of young men that, hey, can we, can we throw a party for you? Can we... I'd, I'd like to throw a barbecue. I'd like to harvest a lot of this fun stuff. We can make some salsa. I'll bring over a barbecue, you know, and a cooler full of sodas. And can we have a graduation party? And I got, you know, the house manager's permission and everybody else's permission. Um, and this was, you know, like the day that they were going to move out. So that, that day, and I think it was a Friday or a Saturday or maybe a Sunday, I, I, you know, it was, it was some years ago. So I brought the team together, the Rise team, brought brought all the residents. We had a party in the backyard. We were having a barbecue and playing music and just really celebrating the fact that we've got some people who are graduating. And halfway through, I, I noticed that, you know, the young man, he's not, he's not really partying. He's not really um, engaging very much. So I, I asked him, hey, what's, what's the matter? You, you seem kind of down or you seem kind of distracted you know are you are you nervous everything's going to be okay and he said well you know i'm i'm more than nervous i'm i'm scared to death mm -hmm. he said i'm if it between you and me if it was up to me and if if i could honestly if i could just pay rent for my room and just stay here i would prefer to do that because this this is my home this is where i learned I learned some valuable skills. This is where I made my friends. This is where I grew into the person I am today. And I, I don't want to leave. I want to stay. I said, I, I wish I could just pay, you know, 300 bucks for my room and then, and then just live my life. So that really, really stuck with me. And it kind of dawned, and I, and I shared this experience with the team, and it dawned on us that why in most transitional homes are we asking people to transition out into the world that it's still a rough world? The world that brought you to your knees in the first place still exists. It's still the world, <laughs> you know? And how successful are a lot of these cases to where people are transitioning out and what's the recidivism rate and do they gain true independence uh, without like these wraparound services or do they end up back on the streets? Do they end up back coming back to the homes? And why are we doing this to them? So we had kind of talked about as a group, you know, it would be amazing, an amazing concept 
would be like a reverse transitional home to if an organization were to get a home and you provided, you know, that that sort of um, that shelter and that community living program for folks. And of course, people would come in for three months, like our friends, David and Melly, and they would say, this is all we need. And we're on we're off on our way. And thank you very much. Love you. And we'll see you around. Um, and we would have a lot of people like that, maybe three months, maybe six months, maybe a year. But eventually, we would find people who wanted to stay. And okay, if you want to stay and you, you just want to pay your piece of the rent and your piece of the utilities, then you're welcome to stay. And then we'll keep cycling through the rest of the, the rooms in the home. Um, and in our minds, we, we had imagined a scenario to where maybe after three or four years, we would find a group of residents, a group of roommates that they all wanted to stay and everything just clicked. And I don't want to go get another apartment. I like living right here. And once that moment happened, then it would be the organization that would transition out of the home and we would sign the mortgage payments over to them. We would sign the utility bills and the trash and the power over to them. And this is now your home. And we're in a better position to go get another home. We can go get another one on the other side of town and we'll do it all over again. So that became the concept for our living room housing model. And we decided to call it the living room because we came up with it in this living room. And, uh, and then plus everybody needs a little living room. So we thought kind of cute. But that became our housing model that the organization would put down the down payment, uh, acquire the property because we're in a position to do that. We would find residents who, uh, on a sliding scale, if you can't afford anything, you don't pay anything. If you can't afford some stuff, we would never go above 30% of your income. If you want to volunteer your time in lieu of rent, whatever the case may be, we'd figure out what makes sense for each individual family and each individual resident. And then once we get to that place where everything clicks and everybody's ready to stay, we're leaving. You guys are you guys are homed. You guys are housed. And we're going to go get another one and we'll do it all again. And we don't, of course, we'll be close if things start to struggle. We're right here. We can we can jump in. We can help uh, get the ship back on course, but for the most part, this is this is your house now. This is your home now, and we don't have to worry about recidivism because you're already home, and we can go somewhere else. This I've never heard of this model before, but it's is this something that you just kind of came up with? Is there is this being done in other cities? This seems like a really kind of innovative approach that doesn't force people, like you said, people build community and they like the home that they live in and. There's probably challenges even when people are, you know, ready to to graduate or move on of the, you know, the the shift in, in the culture in their home of the the people that they see every day. Is this something that other cities are doing or that other organizations do? Because I think it seems just so smart and makes so much sense. I, well, well, thank you. And it's in it. Uh, I mean, it serves the people we mean to serve. Right. So there, to my, not to my understanding, there's any other model like this that exists. How, how's it going? How's it going so far? So when did you start the living room thing and how is, um, what's the progress been or what's the, um, what have the results been? Uh, so, uh, great question. So I want to say this started in 2017. 
and I, and I may have my dates wrong and I'm sorry, I didn't come better prepared, but it was a few years ago um, to where we said, this, this is fantastic. Why isn't anybody doing this? Like this will end homelessness. It, it really will, you know, obviously, obviously it'll end houselessness. We're, we're putting people in houses, ta-da, <laughs> you know, you know, um, so our, our first, uh, again, just love the learning experiences and I, and I never am ever, ever shocked at how naive I can be. So the first thing we do is we go to a bank and we say, we want to take out a loan to buy a house. And they said, okay, well, you know, obviously we were a fairly young, fairly broke fledgling organization. I mean, all of our money is in um, volunteer hours and donated food that's expensed immediately and donated clothing that's given away immediately. Like we don't have any leverage. We don't have any capital assets. We might have had thousands, if not like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of uh, labor hours and donated food and donated uh, clothing and hygiene products transferred through our hands, but it's going directly to the people who need it. So in any case, uh, we, we go out and we take out a loan or we try to like, hey, we, we would like to apply for this house. And they said, OK, well, you don't have a lot of money to put down. I think we had like $20,000 at this point saved up. And they said, what's your revenue source? What's your, how do you, you know, how do you plan on paying the mortgage? And of course, we're naive. We're going to give it to homeless people <laughs> <laughs> for free. Uh, so they said, that's not going to work. Uh, so of course, you know, like in hindsight, obviously, like, yeah, that, that was probably a really bad sales pitch uh, when, <laughs> you know, when we were trying to ask for money. But it's, you know, we were still pretty determined, like, well, no, of course, the the residents would pay for it. And some of them wouldn't be able to pay for it. But we'll 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 make the payments. We'll figure it out. It'll be fine. Event like they'll get to a point as long as we can get them inside first and they don't have to worry about where they're sleeping tonight, what's going to happen to their belongings, where they're going to go to the bathroom, all the date, all all the things that, uh, you know, normies take for granted. Like, where am I going to get my water today? Like, for me, I'm just going to go to the sink. You don't even think about running water being an issue. Where am I going to go to the bathroom? Is all my stuff going to be back when I get back? Like, you, we don't worry about these things. But these are very real, every single day challenges. So again, once we remove that that constant survival mode tyranny of the moment that our, our neighbors are suffering from, then they'll, they'll get to a point where they can go get a job and they'll start helping us pay the bills. We're just kind of kickstarting it again. No, no, but nobody's take that's too high risk. You, you have no, there's no precedent for anything like that. That's not a proven model. You're going to default on your loan. We're not giving you a loan. Well, okay, fine. <laughs> well, so like, well, what do we do team? It took us, you know, six years, seven years to save up $20,000. We want to, wait another seven, eight years. And, and that way we'll have like $30,000. Like what, what are we going to do here? Do we, do we sit on 20 K until it becomes 200 K and then we can just outright buy a house? What are our options? Do we take that 20 K and we just go spend it on office space? And now we have a headquarters. That's not my living room. Like what, what do we do? And we all kind of 
again, putting putting the needs and the suffering of our guests at the forefront of, of all the decisions we make. Well, people need to be inside now. And even if it's just a few people, and, and to us, it, it may be, you know, a drop in the ocean, but it's not a small deal to the people that get the help. So we said, okay, well, we're not, we're not going to stick around and wait. We're, we're going we're gonna to use the money now. So we decided to get into um, motel vouchers and issuing rental vouchers. Uh, obviously, the, the first couple we sponsored was David and Melly that, hey, we are getting you guys into a motel. We'll cover the first three to four months. Uh, you let us, you know, obviously we, we see you all the time. You let us know when you can take over and then we'll go sponsor somebody else. So that is how the Living Room Project was born. The original idea still remains, which is obvious. If we had a large enough capital investment, we could get a home and then eventually turn the payments over to the people who actually live there just kind of like anybody else who owns a home that pays a mortgage. But for the next few years, the, the project really was, we are selecting people who are, who are underserved, that there are no options, um, and these are the people we're going to sponsor. One thing I'll say real quick, uh, which is kind of funny. So when we were developing ground rules for who, who would, how do we choose the appropriate candidates for the living room, um, we we had said okay so again underserved pop underserved or zero served populations so people like david and melly that that are a couple that have pets don't no no um drug and alcohol use um not not old enough to get social security again that's their problem is poverty so we had said okay well nobody with kids because this opens up CPS issues. This opens up a whole can of worms that none of us are really qualified to deal with. Okay, nobody's suffering from substance use disorder because, again, opens up a whole can of worms that none of us are really qualified to deal with. And and there are other programs out in this town that deal with that. And I, I there was one more criteria to where we said we're we're not qualified to deal with it. Um, and of course, you know. It's it's rise, so we broke every single one of our rules <laughs> fairly early on. I'll tell you uh, about the the first family that we decided to sponsor, but I'm going to take a sip of my tea really fast. Yeah, that's fine. Do you find that being a young and smallish and nimble organization around this project was a a benefit? Sometimes, like you said, you. You know, you figured it out as you go along. Do you think that gave you more flexibility to do things differently than maybe a larger institution would in dealing with these issues? Um, I think, I think so. Yes, because we we weren't really fixated, or we we didn't have a lot of attachment to what they call fixed costs. So fixed costs is a um or sunken costs rather. My apologies. So sunken costs is the concept of you know, we've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into this thing and it's not working and we can't just walk away from it. You know, for us, it was just, hey, we're trying this thing. We, we volunteered lots of hours and time and it's, it's not working. We have to do something else. So it, it never really was about saving face. I think one of the things that was a real benefit to us um, as an organization, um, especially in the early days, is we weren't afraid to look stupid. We weren't afraid to fail. 
Um, we weren't afraid to, to try something and fall flat on our face doing it, you know, and, and that happened a lot uh, to where we would we would do something and it wouldn't work or we would uh, go to a city council meeting and start, you know, um, yelling about stuff and we would get proven wrong immediately in the chambers and we'd go, oh, we didn't know that. But it, it doesn't mean I'm doesn't mean we're not coming back, <laughs> you know, uh, we're still coming back. And, and again, you know, one of the things that I've always felt really, really proud about Rise is we're, we're trying to put ourselves out of business. We don't want to be in the homeless service business because it's not a business. There should be no business model for this. Uh, we don't, I don't want to do this when I'm 60. I don't want to retire as in this field. I don't want this field to exist. So one of the, like, I've, I've always been super proud of this team for always checking ourselves to where it's, is this accomplishing our goal? Is this moving toward our goal of, of ending uh, or not needing these services? One of the things that, um, and I'll just tell you, it's kind of funny, you know, we get, we get asked a lot all throughout the years, what does the perfect community dinner look like? What does the perfect shelter look like? What does the perfect, um, you know, free market look like? What, what do, what do these things look like? How do they work? What's, what's your ideal vision? And, um, you know, our answer is always the same for every single one of them. The, the perfect dinner is empty. The perfect shelter is empty because it's not needed anymore in the community. So that's, that's always at the forefront of, of the decisions that we make. What are we doing best by our guests? And how does this improve the overall homelessness and poverty um, demographic and dynamic in our region? So tell me about our place. That is the, the, the big project, right? What has the path been to that? And kind of can you describe what our place is and the services it provides and kind of the vision for it? Yeah, Absolutely. Did you want, I'm sorry, real quick. Did you want to hear about the, the, the living room family? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, you know, I have another question. I want to hear about the living room family. And I also want to ask you about the, the volunteer efforts around the living room. Cause I was looking on the website and I think it's really interesting that the, the model of the living room also involves this aspect of volunteer support, right? It, it does. Yes. So I'll, I'll tell you the, Real quick story about the first family that we ever hosted and then uh, ways to get involved in the living room. So uh, this family, and again, I'm going to be really careful not to use names. I remember the first time that we had met them um, and it was during Rise and Dine and they were staying at the family shelter. Um, the father had come out and said, Hey, what's, what's all this? And we were kind of setting up the, uh, the clothing rack and putting the tables and the canopy up. I said, oh, we're, you know, it's, it starts in about 20 minutes. We're going to be giving out, you know, clothes and hygiene. And, you know, if you, if you need some, the line is starting back there. And he said, oh, awesome. Can I help? He says, I, I like to work for everything I get. Can I help? I said, yeah, absolutely. So he, you know, he helps me set up and then he goes and gets his wife and his kid and they're helping. And then uh, he decides to help us for dinner and help serve and, and kind of help pick up trash and all the rest of it. And then, you know, at the end, he said, hey, can I, you know, I've been eyeballing those pair of shoes and is it okay if I get something to eat? 
you know, I really appreciate your help today. Here you go. They're yours. Here's a couple of plates for you and the family. They're yours. Really, really appreciate your help. So for the next couple of months, every time we'd show up, they were there. They were helping us um, get the line organized. They were helping us get the volunteers organized. Just, just amazing people. You know, and then uh, one day we, we showed up and, and they weren't there. And this, uh, you know, this field is, it's a weird field to be in because you, you, you care for people so much that you hope that you don't see them down there again, you know? So one day we show up and they're not there and I just kind of like, okay, well maybe, um, something happened or maybe they're, I'm sure everything's fine. And then the next, the next weekend you show up and they're not there again. And I kind of started asking around, Hey, has anybody seen them? And Oh yeah, no, they moved out. I said, okay, okay, great. Okay, cool. I'm just, thank you. In my head, I can just be happy with that. There's just this, <laughs> you know, into the sunset sort of ending. Um, and I'm, I'll just, that's what I've created for me in my head. And that's okay. So I think that was early summer was the last time I had saw them. So we're going through our summer, we're doing our thing. This was right around the time I want to say the living room was born and we started issuing our first motel voucher to David and Melly. Towards the end of summer, setting up for the free market and I see uh, dad walking through the gates and coming up. And uh, I saw him and I ran up to him and, you know, I gave him a big hug and I said, hey, how have you been? How are you doing? He said, I, I just, I, you know, I missed you guys. I just wanted to come help. I said, okay, great. Yeah, we, we missed you too, man. How's everything? And he kept kind of like avoiding that question. I'm like, how have you been? How's, you know, uh, mom, how's, how's the kid? He said, they're doing all right, man. Hey, can I give you a hand over here? So he, he, was, he was avoiding it and I kind of knew it. We were busy, so I just got busy. So, you know, we, we wrap up dinner, we're, we're closing up, we're saying goodbye to the volunteers and he's helping us pack up. Um, and then I said, all right, man, talk to me. What's going on, man? How is, how is everything? What's going on? And he said, you know, I'm, I, I just needed to walk away for a second. I needed to get away. I'm like, where, where have you guys been, man? He says, we've, we've been living down by the river. And I said, oh, I thought, I thought you moved out. I thought things were going okay. And he said, well, um, it was for a little bit, but um, my employer did a background check and they found my felony and, you know, I lost a job and we kind of already timed out of this place. So we've been, we've been down by the river, man. I said, well, I'm, you know, that's, that's awful. I'm so sorry to hear that. And in my mind, I'm thinking like, we said no kids. We said no kids. <laughs> you know, we said no kids, man. Don't do it. Um, so I said, I'm I'm so sorry to hear that. He said, Yeah, it's just you know my my son started um, school this past week. I said, Oh yeah, that's right. What grade is he in? And you know we're we're talking. He said, But uh, you know, we were just uh, at our little place over here by the river, and he told me that you know, Dad, uh, I'm talking to all my friends at school. And we're talking about our summer vacations and, you know, some people went to Disneyland, some people went to go visit their family. Um, and, you know, I told them that, that we've been camping, that we went camping. Um, but, you know, like summer breaks over and all of my, all of my friends are home now. And when are we going home? And he said, and that, that messed me up, man. And I had to take a walk and, um, you know, he started choking up and I started choking up too. 
so then that that night when the when the team got back to the house and we were unloading tables and you know doing the dishes i kind of said i i don't i kind of want to break a rule you guys <laughs> i kind of want to culture this family <laughs> it's like let me just tell you what happened um and of course it's rise so they all said yeah let's do it so we went and we went and found them the next day and said we want to get you somewhere we want to get you guys out of here like for reals no no let's let's do it no strings attached let's just how much time do you need you know, it's 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 kind of funny with that particular story. Um, this family ended up being the dad ended up working his self. We we got him into a weekly motel, and he worked himself into being the um, like the handyman slash manager of that motel, which was pretty awesome. Because then whenever we needed a spot, we would go in there and say, "Hey, do you got a room for us?" And and always they always did, and it was a nice way to start bringing in more families and and more folks that uh, that we started sponsoring over the years. So it's uh, yeah, and that that was uh, the living room uh, where we're at now. We did finally get a pretty good lease on a on a triplex home. I don't want to disclose the location because obviously we're hosting vulnerable populations. But the idea is that uh, we build a team of four. So we have our living room director who who works specifically for Rise. In in our experience, we've always learned that teams of three are the best way to get people housed. Like you need three caseworkers in order to get somebody actually housed. Whether it would have been a, a Rise caseworker and, and an HPN caseworker and a, and a Hopes caseworker, which in the past had kind of been the model, or a Rise caseworker and two other caseworkers all working on a single family. And it's just like that's how we get somebody successfully permanently housed. You need three people all coordinating and working together. The Rise living room model is a team of four. So it's the living room director, two volunteers. And the fourth member is, is the the guest to help them realize like they they need you you can't tell people what to do we need we need their input we need their buy-in and we need their permission to say this is what we think would be the best course of action for you given your your situation and how do you feel is this something you want to do what do you what do you want to do because if it's not something you want to do we it's not going to work so you can go to the website, um, renoinitiative.org. There is a section called Living Room where we, we are fundraising. And if you want to get more involved, our Living Room Director's email is in there, and she can let you know. It can be anything from just doing phone call uh, wellness checks to accountability checks. Just, hey, did you do those few things? And come on, we can, we can do it. How can I help you? Um, just, just being available, really, to... Um, um, either they need somebody to talk to, they need an accountability buddy, maybe just a simple wellness check, or maybe even just a simple like, okay, I'll go with you today. I'll give you a ride. We'll do this together. I know in times of COVID, it makes it really difficult to engage people, but that's why we tried to transition more to a, do, do you mind calling on this person and just seeing if they've they've done the thing that that we agreed needs to happen? So that's where we're at. Do you think that it helps giving the people that are participating in the living room project that kind of agency and decision making over over what they're doing and a, a support network? Is that a big part of the puzzle to creating a permanently housed situation for them rather than just saying, hey, here's a, you know, a voucher for a motel and now you're on your own? Do you think that 
the the support, especially just you know, like you said, checking in and and having someone to talk to, is that a big piece of the puzzle to make sure that that these measures work in the long term? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's called housing first, not housing only for a reason. <laughs> you know, most of um, you know, a lot of things that that people I I guess don't understand or don't really think about when when we're dealing with poverty and we're dealing with houselessness is the massive amounts of trauma that come with it, whether it was either early childhood trauma that led to, you know, uh, substance use disorder as a coping mechanism, um, which which happens. That's not everybody's story. Or there's folks that you you suffered an injury at work or you just got sick and we don't really have social safety nets in this country. We don't, in this country, people aren't allowed to be human. People aren't allowed to fail without losing everything, you know, unless you have your own family network or your own support network. We don't, we don't have a community support network really. And and if we do, it's just, it's not nearly enough. So being outside is traumatic all on its own because all of a sudden you, you become an other you're again we have this concept or this perception that if you're out there you did something wrong you chose this lifestyle you're a bad person and you're deserving of this outcome so people people treat you that way and then even just the the you know the um what the task of asking for help like hey can i can i get some help oh you're just uh, you just wasted all your help. You wasted all your lifelines, and that's why you're you're just a bad person. Before we get into talking about our place, what do you think some of the methods or strategies might be to to fix the issue of of the stigma of the you know the social acceptance piece? Because that seems to be at the root of a lot of this. So, what are the ways to to fix it or address that so that it is less of a fundamental part of the problem? I mean, volunteering and engaging with 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 the community, um, engaging with the people that are unsheltered, I think is is the biggest way to do that. And that that was the beauty of Rise and Dine. That was the beauty of of all of our volunteer projects. Was that you're gonna go, you're gonna meet somebody who's gonna remind you of somebody in your life. You're gonna meet somebody who you're gonna say that that really reminds me of my uncle or my niece or my cousin or my my old roommate. And I wonder whatever happened to that person. I mean, chances are they they could have wound up here too. So I think more more engagement, more just recognizing our shared humanity too. And it's funny because again, I think as a culture, as a society, we're afraid to do that. We turn the other way when we see somebody who's suffering and asking for help. We turn the other. We pretend that it's not happening when we see our fellow our fellow person um, out there. Uh, we pretend their suffering doesn't exist. And I think a lot of it is because we, we don't want to admit that that could be us. We don't want to admit that that could be somebody that we love. So we pretend it's not happening. We pretend that, well, I'm a good person. This could never happen to me. So we, we, we isolate them and we isolate ourselves from them um, out of fear of, the similarities that we have because we have more similarities than we have differences. So how do we, how do we destroy that? Um, get involved, 
get involved somehow. Find an organization that's that's doing something you believe in and uh, volunteer with them. If you can't find an organization that's doing something that you believe in, do what we did and start your own. Anybody can do it. Anybody can treat somebody with dignity and compassion and respect and kindness. It doesn't, you don't need, you don't need a PhD. You don't need a, a 501c3. You don't need all the red tape to do it. My answer is that we, we just need to recognize our, our, our shared circumstances, our shared humanity. And really the bottom line is our shared fate because there, there is no future where we're all getting out of this thing. You know, there's no future that, that exists to where only all the bad things happen to our houseless people and only all the good things happen to, to me. Our, our fates are intertwined. Our futures are intertwined. What happens to them happens to us. If you want to gauge the strength of any community, of any society, look at the most vulnerable person in that society and look at the health and welfare of that person because that tells you more about how a society is functioning than um, the most well-off person in, in your community. I'd love to talk about Our Place and other projects that are coming up. So tell me a little bit about Our Place and and what that is and and what kind of the, the current projects. That is the emergency shelter for women and families and seniors here in Washoe County. We were, uh, we were encouraged to apply for our place uh, late 2019 that, hey, the, the request for proposals are, is going out. The county is looking for operators for our place. You know, we had heard rumors that the old NAMS campus is being transitioned and transformed and, and uh, rehabbed into this beautiful, um, beautiful campus. And we're, we're removing the women and the families from the downtown shelter. And that's just all going to be men. And we're taking this population and giving them a, a more holistic, a more healing environment. And so we were, you know, we were in love with the concept that just, yes, you know, the, the downtown community assistance center uh, has been overcrowded for years we've been at capacity as far as emergency shelter goes for, for many, many years. It took so long for even just regional authorities and decision makers to finally admit that, yes, we are in a housing crisis and that, yes, people are getting priced out of their own hometowns, the most vulnerable among us, those on fixed incomes, those living paycheck to paycheck, they're the ones going outside. So when the Our Place uh, RFP was was open for bid, of course we thought like that that's great, and hopefully hopefully they don't screw it up. <laughs> Whoever gets it, hopefully they don't screw it up. Um, but we were encouraged to apply. Um, I mean, we were pretty pretty loud advocates about how people uh, deserve to be treated nicely, that they deserve to be treated with dignity. They deserve nice things too this sort of withholding, I don't know, withholding items is not a motivational tactic that's working. Any case, so we said, okay, well, friends are telling us to apply. We kind of have to. We can't be that that organization that complains you're doing it wrong and, and never write down on paper, here's how we'd do it. So we said, okay, well, this is this is how we would do it. You know, one funny thing that I just want to share when we were writing the RFP, 
or the proposal, our intern at the time, who's now our family homes manager, she had kind of brought this to my attention because I didn't realize it, but we were all sitting in a room with our laptops and we were all typing on a shared Google Doc, just all the things that we wanted to, to see, you know, uh, whether it being uh, LGBTQ inclusive and inclusive, inclusive of trans women or just a whole host of topics as to like, here's what we imagine it'll look like. And then when we were done, obviously we had to polish it and, you know, we had nine different voices in this proposal. So we had to kind of polish it to make sure it all smooths well. And we submitted it and she had pointed it out after we had submitted that, uh, you know, guys, we didn't take out a single thing that any of us had put on that piece of paper. Like we reorganized it maybe, but we didn't remove anything. And I think that speaks volumes as to the type of organization we are. Any case, so really funny story. We apply like, okay, well, that, that, was, that was a fun exercise. Like, at least we know how to write proposals now. That's in my mind. Like, well, at least now we know how to write a proposal. And we've got a good one for, you know, when one day this, <laughs> this happens. So it was, I want to say, early February. Like, the timing was amazing. Uh, like early to mid-February, it's announced that Rise has been chosen as the operator for our place. Um, and you know, I really didn't believe it. I said, is this a joke? Do they, are they joking, right? Like, I know you didn't choose this ragtag group to, do, to, to be in charge of this multi-million dollar investment that you just made. So we had kind of called and said, are we, are we serious? And they said, yeah, we're serious. I said, okay, when can we quit our jobs? When can we all put in our, our, our resignations and start working? I mean, at the time we were volunteers all these years, we all had day jobs. So right when the vote was going to go to the board of county commissioners, COVID lockdown hits, no more public meetings, no more nothing. So we were kind of in limbo for like a month of, are we actually, do we actually have this contract? Can I quit my job now? And our friends in the county human services agency was saying, yes, we, we, we chose you. We proposed, they just need to vote on it and make it official. I'm like, well, I can't really quit my job until I know that I have another job, <laughs> you know? So that we do have a video on our Facebook page of the day that they had called an emergency meeting to officially vote on this so that we could all actually get started. So just kind of a, just the, the trials of trying to open up a shelter in the middle of quarantine, right? Any case, some of what makes our place unique. So it is a low barrier, um, low barrier housing first model. What that means is that we've tried to remove as many barriers as possible to emergency housing. Our guests are allowed to bring their animal companions. That's been identified as one of the biggest barriers, choosing between your, your pet or choosing your shelter. That kind of seemed like an easy one. That, and, and I say easy, but I know our partner spent many, 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 many months making sure that this goes smoothly. But allowing uh, animals on campus, not requiring sobriety, so we don't drug test folks. Uh, not requiring any sort of psychiatric med management before you're allowed uh, shelter. So some high barrier shelters require that, that, hey, you, you have to go get your mental health issues under control before you're allowed to seek emergency services, or you have to go through detox or recovery and successfully graduate. 
and be pursuing or at least be sober before you're allowed to come onto campus. So having all of those barriers removed, uh, we don't, there's no sort of income requirements um, in order to access emergency shelter. Again, that's all part of the housing first model that we can't address any of these other issues until you have a safe, secure place and we can start actually planning for the future. When we remove that, where am I going to sleep tonight? Fear. We definitely appreciate and adopt the uh, harm reduction philosophy, which is meeting, meeting people where they're at, but not leaving them there. So, so meeting people without judgment, uh, acknowledging any of the issues that, that we may be struggling with, whether it meant, may be mental health, whether it may be substance use uh, disorder, we have sharps containers on site. We have uh, Narcan on site. All of our team, well, most of our team has been trained on how to administer it. So, so reducing harm as much as possible. But again, the key there is uh, harm reduction as a pathway to recovery. Once we establish that relationship without judgment, and we start to gain that trust that, you know, hey, we we actually do care about you, and you know, we wish we wish you wouldn't do these things, you know. And then starting to play those those kind of um, or, or starting to present some of those challenges like, you know, it kind of seems that some of your issues are revolving around this thing that you're doing. Let's let's try an experiment. Do you want to try not doing that for maybe a week and see if we still have those issues? And of course, if they say no, then OK, you're allowed to say no. That's not going to cost you your bed. That's not going to cost you our relationship. So I think those are important. Um, one of the, the key tenants of our model as well is intentionally hiring and, and supporting a certified peer recovery support specialists. So what uh, certified CPRSS, these are folks with lived experience who have two years of recovery, whether it be from substance use disorder, mental health, whatever the case it may be. They're able to identify what they're recovering from and what their recovery looks like. So in order to get certified, having that, that lived experience, being in recovery for two or more years, um, you have to take the, the online uh, modules. So it's, it's through CASAT up at UNR where you learn about motivational interviewing, you learn about tra trauma-informed care, you learn about harm reduction, you learn about all the different pathways to recovery. But one of the biggest things that they learn is how to remove stigma from their own personal story how to not perpetuate stigma from those who have similar stories, and then to really how to use their story, how to, how to tell their story and use their experience as an educational tool for those who are early in their recovery or recovery curious, if you will. So then after they, they go through uh, the program up at UNR, they have to pass a state uh, certified board exam. Um, and then once they do, great, you're a certified peer recovery support specialist. So we high, we intentionally brought on people onto our team that were either already certified or who have identified as having lived experience in either homelessness, substance use, uh, et cetera. In my mind, and I think our guests will agree, that makes our, our team more relatable, more trustworthy, more approachable, and it's, you know, a living, living proof that, hey, there's, there's life after this place. There's life after what you're going through. And I know, and I can tell you, because I'm it. 
So our, our county partner has been amazing to work with. They've been super responsive, um, very flexible, very patient with us. As, as you can imagine, RISE being a, a consensus-based organization, sometimes it takes us a little bit longer than it would other organizations to kind of decide which way we're going to go. And that's fine. The benefits of consensus far outweigh any sort of hindrances. But some of the things that I'm really uh, excited and, and proud about, uh, when, when we opened, we had a capacity for 102 women and 28 families. And we pretty much opened with a wait list. We became full immediately and we had a wait list. Just this past month, we opened up a fourth family home. So we now have a capacity for 38 families. And just this past week, we opened up a second women's home, which is specific in uh, recovery and risk reduction to add on an additional 36 beds for, for women residents. So we are now at 38 families and 138 women residents. It's been an amazing journey. I'm learning a, a lot from our partner. I'm learning a lot from our guests. And I'm learning a lot from our team because they're, I mean, they're in there day in, day out, supporting our families, supporting our women, de-escalating when they get triggered, uh, motivating them when they get depressed. You know, I've, I've told a few people that, again, you know, this pandemic's been hard on a lot of people. And I, and I by no means am saying that I, I've had to deal with the worst of it because I haven't. And my heart goes out to everybody who's lost somebody through this thing because it's been really, really bad. But, you know, nationally, mm -hmm. uh, domestic violence has been on the rise. Substance use has been on the rise. Mental health illness or mental health disorders has been on the rise. Um, it's been really bad for everybody. But then when we, when we take a demographic or a population who may have been suffering from those sort of things prior to the pandemic, and then you and then you isolate them to, hey, you can't, we're not allowed to go anywhere. I mean, of course, they're allowed to leave campus, but everything's closed. And we're not allowed to bring volunteers on campus. And, and understandably so, it's a pandemic. We can't risk ex exposing people to things. Like this was like the worst possible timing. Not that there's any timing for a pandemic, but this was just really bad, <laughs> you know, bad timing. <laughs> Because we get to open up a beautiful campus and have all this wonderful space to where we can have activities and, and, and groups and invite volunteers and, and all of our, all of the amazing friends that we've made over, over the years. And then, oh, we can't, we can't show it off. We can't invite you to come in. But in any case, again, if that's the worst that we have to deal with uh, going through the pandemic, I'll consider myself extremely, extremely lucky. Yeah, I imagine that you're excited about hopefully getting past the pandemic and being able to really make the most out of the programs, right? Absolutely. So one of the, you know, and it was even in our proposal and the whole vision for our place besides um, you know, and, and again, our, our, our county partner has been amazing to work with. They, uh, they definitely have adopted and have invested the holistic approach to tackling the houselessness crisis, you know, that, hey, people need a conducive place to heal. People need different levels of support. They've invested in case managers on site. They've invested in a therapist on site. They've invested in a nurse on site. 
their caseworker to, to guest ratio, I think is like one to 20, something like that, so that people can actually engage, personalize. But what our vision uh, bringing to the table was that we, we spent a decade building up this volunteer base, this community support. And, and kind of like we said earlier on, we, we didn't have to dictate who talked to who or how things worked out. All we did was give people permission to get involved and, and permission to help. That's all we had to do. And then they figured it out themselves. So the idea was that you're not just bringing rise, we're bringing the community onto campus. We're bringing the community to these families and to the women and providing that space to let people organically create their own resource circles, create their own network circles, to let people organically network, I guess, really. So then that way, when it was time for this family or this women to leave our place, they didn't have to quote unquote re-enter the community. They were already a part of the community. They just had to find somewhere else to live. So that was kind of the whole vision of like, we're going to bring all these wonderful people that we've met and we don't have to get our guests back into the community. We're going to bring the community to them because they're, they're a part of our community. And once they have that sense of purpose, that sense of value and those friendships that they make, that will solve most of these issues. So that, that was kind of the idea. And Yep. Quarantine. <laughs> well, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know that, that we've been talking for a while. I have still like a list of questions. I got to have, I got to have way more conversations about this topic. I wanted to ask about the safe camping. Uh, I know that there's a lot of conversation around that. I know other cities have tried that uh, just to get at least a, you know, a safe place for people to camp if they are living outdoors instead of having to worry about their stuff being stolen. I wanted to talk to you about people that are resistant to shelters. I know some people have had bad experiences with shelters and programs. So there's some understandable worries and that all kinds of things that I wanted to ask you, but I, but I kind of ran out of time. So we'll have to have another conversation sometime, but what do you want people to know? How do people, if they want to get involved, if people want to get involved, how can they do so? What's a good way for them to learn more about rise or this issue in general? And uh, what do you want people to take away? All great questions. And, and I'm sorry, Connor, that we didn't really even get into the meat of like, you know, why, why do people not go to housing? What's, what is a safe camp? What does it mean? What are those varied success and uh, failures? And um, I mean, Rise has been pushing for a safe camp for a long time in this town, but it does look like it's going to be part of the Nevada Cares campus. So I'm really, really excited about that. And, and we are going to have to spend some more time together Next time, just tell me to be quiet. <laughs> just interrupt me. It's okay. <laughs> no, well, I mean, well, I, I wanted to hear all the things you were saying. I think honestly, one of the goals of this podcast is to have long conversations and to get into the, you know, the the stories and get into the weeds on some of this stuff. So the last thing I want to do is interrupt and bring everything down to like a quick snippet of, oh, here's a little factoid about this, and here's a little short story about that. I would much rather do multiple episodes where I get to hear more of the detail and have more of the conversation than try to narrow it down to, to fit it into a certain amount of time. That's, that's not my goal. I'd much rather just, you know, have another episode with you. 
Right on, man. Fair enough. Yeah, I'm, this was this was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate you giving me giving me time to just relive a lot of everything that that we've been through. That was that was great. So, how to? I mean, biggest thing I just want people to know. I you know, poverty is not contagious. Hunger's not a disease. It's okay to and and I don't know if it's okay is the right word, but when we bear witness to the suffering of our neighbors, that's the least that we can do for them. The least we can do is 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 witness and recognize and acknowledge that this this is painful, that this hurts. I think that's that's the first step really if if we're just going to keep walking through life with our blinders on and pretending that our our system and our society is not is not doing this to people that's the worst thing that that anybody can do you know like even if we're even if you don't want to help at the very least you can at least pretend that it's you know stop pretending that it's not happening uh, other ways to get more involved if if you want to stay involved in in regional politics the community housing advisory board meets monthly that's um that's the regional board where they discuss you know what's going on along the river what's going on with uh police uh law enforcement on encampments etc so that's that's a public meeting that happens once a month that it's it's good to get involved in right now the city of Reno is the uh main host of that so if you go to their website uh, look up Community Homeless Advisory Board, the RAW meetings, uh, Reno Area Alliance to, uh, to End Homelessness. I think I got that acronym right. I'm sorry. That's another one of those monthly public meetings that happens. I want to say it's the first Thursday of every month in the morning. So all the regional service providers get together. They they kind of announce um, what they're doing, what they're what they need help with, et cetera. So those are easy ways just to kind of keep tabs on this is what's happening regionally. For RISE, I know the the living room is soliciting volunteers. Right now for campus, we're still in a position, the Our Place campus anyways, we're still in a position to where we can't really host volunteer groups right now, which is, again, really heartbreaking for me because it's it was one of my favorite things about this is you know, just, just watching people, I don't know, be people <laughs> to like together, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just one of those things I really enjoy. I guess I'm a people watcher, I suppose. I don't know, but I do know that our, our living room project, uh, we are accepting volunteers. That's definitely a way to get, to get more involved. And again, you can find that on our website, the rise and dine project we did put on hold for, for a number of various reasons, but it does look like that may be coming back soon to where we can start serving dinners again and that we'll have a space to do that. So a lot of it, I'm really excited. I I got vaccinated. Um, I'm really excited to get past this point to where, hey, we we really do, we can can safely start gathering and congregating again. And then when that happens, we certainly plan on bringing more opportunity to our, our place residents. But you know, it's, it safety is everybody's concern first, and we and we have to put that at the forefront of everything we do right now. Thank you again so 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 much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited about this project. Like I said, being able to have kind of in depth conversations with people who are doing really important things in Reno, and this is such an important topic for everyone who lives in this city. So I'm really grateful that you were able to 
to give me the background and, and let me know what you're working on. It's super important stuff. So again, I appreciate so much you taking the time out of what is obviously a very busy job to, uh, to let us know about it. Well, th- thank you, Conor. I, you know, I really appreciate um, you, you having me on and I'm extremely f- flattered and humbled. I think uh, what you're doing is important work. Uh, I look forward to hearing some of the other guests because we, we have some amazing people in this community. And uh, yeah, keep up the great work. I'm very excited about this project too. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And thank you again, Ben for being my guest this week. It was so great to learn so much about Rise. If you are interested in learning more about Rise, please be sure to check out their website. It is renoinitiative.org. That's all I've got for you this week. Tune in again next week for the next episode of Renoites. Renoites.